but Mac is a graduate of uh, Georgia State University with a degree in speech communication. Mac is a traveling youth evangelist. He is, uh, has been with Life Action Ministries now since 2011, traveled with a team, and now he's their national youth coordinator. Uh, and he works with Life Action with their youth ministry, writes the curriculum, trains their youth uh, speakers, and, and still goes on the road with them some. Mac also has a ministry of his own where he travels and uh, ministers, churches, and youth groups through uh, youth events, camps, denials, all kinds of stuff. And Mac is here today to talk with us and preach the God's Word as we prepare for what God is going to do in February, February the 15th through that next Sunday will be our Life Action Summit when the whole team will be here, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Mac is uh, uh, going to come and preach right after uh, we see this video. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that something is wrong. Just look around. Over 40% of those who have said, I do, end up saying, I don't. 40% of children in the United States are born to unmarried parents. 80% of American churches are in plateau or decline. In communities, trust is threatened by violence. And in nations, community is threatened by terror. What do we do when everything we've tried simply isn't working, but instead seems to be getting worse? The solution isn't going to come from politics or education or innovation because none of these solutions gets to the heart of the matter. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, real corruption comes out of the heart. So change on the outside can really only come when there's change on the inside. Trying to change outward behavior without changing hearts is like treating the symptoms of a disease but never dealing with the cause. It's like expending a tremendous amount of energy to go faster and faster without ever asking, am I headed in the right direction? It's like trying to get a job done with no power. No matter how hard you try, it's not good enough. These problems aren't unique to our time. History records seasons marked by turmoil, violence, and broken relationships. It also tells us that God has dramatically changed hearts during times like these in special moments of revival. Revival gets to the heart of the matter. And things change when people come before the Lord in repentance and brokenness. In times of revival, God displays His power. He accelerates, He intensifies His work beyond anything we could do on our own. In times of revival, people get out of their routines and make space for the things that matter most. During times of revival, hearts change from the inside out. People get right with God and with each other, discovering the joy of forgiveness, honesty, and holiness. During times of revival, God brings broken families together. He heals communities. He strengthens nations. 
Revival changes everything. Good morning, church. How are you this morning? You always look back to the sound booth, but really it's my fault. So I shouldn't have looked back at him. You guys good? Is everybody good? I don't. Th- if we had an early service, I would say that this was good for the early service. We've only got one today, so is everybody good? Okay, that's what I'm talking about. If you've got a Bible this morning, if you've got a Bible, uh, if you'll meet me in... Uh, Meet me in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Meet me in Mark chapter 10 this morning. You see, we see the, the revival that really does change everything. We see, we see that. And I, so I think about something that changes everything. And I'm, I'm often taken back to defining moments. I think about defining moments in our life. I think about uh, defining moments for, for, for us. Like, for instance, for me, uh, uh, we can all agree that a defining moment maybe was uh, September 11th. Everybody, can, can everybody agree with that? September 11th. 2001 was a defining moment, was it not? For our country, I do a lot of travel, as your pastor said, and so for me, that that forever changed the way that I would travel, right? Like uh, the the things that uh, that I had to go through in order to get on an airplane, and I'm so grateful for all that. But that that's a defining moment, right? It changes everything. Uh, I think about other defining moments, as your pastor said. I'm a huge Kentucky fan, and so uh, we're just about to get cranked up on the season that I enjoy the most, which is basketball season. And when we hired John Calipari several years ago, that that was a defining moment for us. It brought us back to winning a championship every other year, and so that's what we're supposed to do. And so uh, you guys are supposed to laugh at that, but that's all right. It's football country, so I understand uh, down here. I, I get it. And so it's like Alabama fans, and you hired Nick Saban, right? Was that a game changer or what? Yeah? And the Auburn fans are like, shut up. I wish you wouldn't talk. So uh, anyway, but it, it's just I think about defining moments. Like uh, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine called me uh, uh, several, uh, I guess a year ago, he called me and I was in his wedding, uh, not this past January, but two Januaries ago. And, and, uh, and, and so he, he called me about six months after his wedding and he goes, Hey Mac, I want you to know, uh, uh, Hillary and I are pregnant. So he said, Hillary and I are pregnant. I said, I said, wow. I said, you're pregnant, huh? Already Hillary pregnant. That's good. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, I said, I said, Gardner, uh, you do understand that your life is over forever, right? I say, you understand that, like, it's never just you and Hillary ever again. Like, it's always you, Hillary, and your child. Like, even when they're 40, they're going to be living in your basement, eating your food, watching your TV, playing your video games, right? Like, that's what's going to happen. So, did you understand? So, like, uh, parents, can, can you agree that, that, like, a defining moment would be like having a child is a defining moment? Can you guys all agree with that this morning? So, it defines it. It changes everything for us, all right? And so I think about these defining moments, and that's what, that for me is what excites me the most about what your church is preparing for in February, is that it's going to be a defining moment for your church. Just like the video said, revival changes everything, because like a a message taught out of the mind and taught out of the mouth changes minds, and and taught out of the heart changes hearts, but taught out of the life changes lives, and what I, I pray, and what I hope really happens during these days is that, is that for you is that your life is changed in such a way that you teach a message out of your life everywhere you go. That's what I hope and that's what I pray. If there's one man who understood what it meant to have an encounter that changed everything, it would be a man by the name of Blind Bartimaeus that we'll see right here in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse number 46. This message this morning is simply entitled, The Collision That Changed Everything. 
It's the collision that changed everything. That for blind Bartimaeus, he, underst- he understands a defining moment because for him, this was a defining moment. This defined and changed everything for him. And I think that for us, that if we, if we understand what it looks like to collide with Jesus, I think that there's three things that we can learn from blind Bartimaeus this morning that, that need to happen in order for us to collide with Jesus. That's three things that need to happen for us in order to collide with Jesus. And, and blind Bartimaeus lays that out so, uh, so well right here. It's laid out so well in the story of blind Bartimaeus right here in, verse, in these six simple verses, verses 46 through 52. And so if you've got a Bible and you're with me there in verse 46, uh, here we go. We'll begin this morning reading in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, now this is very important, because here's blind Bartimaeus, and all the Bible allows us to understand about what blind Bartimaeus does is, is that he's got one thing that we know of, one possession that we know of that blind Bartimaeus has, which is his cloak, which also doubles as his begging mat. Therefore, this cloak, this thing, is his livelihood. And that's all we know that, we ha- that he has. And so he spends every single day begging by the roadside. But here's what Blind Bartimaeus does. is Blind Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is going to be coming by his road is going to be coming by on the road to Jericho. And so he strategically positions himself in such a way that he is standing there right by the edge of the road to Jericho so that he knows for a fact that Jesus is going to be coming down. Now, for you and for me, as we show up in church every Sunday, I hope and I pray that we show up every Sunday because we know that, sure, is Jesus accessible to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year? Without question. But if we're going to show up somewhere we know for a fact that the presence of God is going to be, I hope it's on Sunday morning in church. And so for you and for me, hopefully we came to church this morning knowing that we were going to meet with Jesus. But I can tell you one thing for sure, as I know this for a fact, as I traveled with this ministry for a couple of years, I know for a fact that what your pastor has done by scheduling this eight-day meeting is that what, what he's done is, is he, he's, he strategically positioned you guys in a place that you're right there by the road of, road of Jericho, that night after night, for these series of eight days, with the exception of Friday night, that night after night, you're on the road to meet with Jesus. That you strategically positioned yourself in such a way that you're right there waiting for Jesus to walk by. And so blind Bartimaeus, what he does here is he strategically positions himself in such a way that he is going to be able to see Jesus when he comes by. And I hope and I pray that's what we do every Sunday morning, but I know for a fact that that's what we do as, as we look forward toward this Life Action Summit is that we're strategically positioning ourselves in a way that Jesus is going to walk by. It's like I said in Sunday, Sunday school this morning, revival is not something that we can schedule on our calendar. Revival is a sovereign move of God that only he knows. But what we can do is we can schedule a series of meetings in which we stand by the roadside and go, Jesus, won't you come? Jesus, won't you pass by us? And that's exactly what we've done. That's exactly what you've done. Is you've scheduled for yourself these these eight days in order to to meet here. And so now the onus, to be honest, is really on you. Is like, are you going to clear your calendar, your schedule to say, okay, Jesus, here we are. We're at the the edge of the road. Now won't you come by? Because I know that's what is going to happen during these days. And so here's blind Bartimaeus, and he strategically positions himself in such a way that he he would encounter Jesus. In verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now I like to circle, highlight and underline in my Bible. and I've circled that phrase, on me there. Because here's what Blind Bartimaeus doesn't do as he stands by the roadside. He doesn't go, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on them. They need you. 
He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, or he says, yeah, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, I think so oftentimes, like, what we, we end up praying this prayer, Jesus, I just pray that you would humble me. Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that, that, that for us, that we should, we should humble ourselves and pray and seek his face, and then he will what? He will hear us and what? Heal our land. Well, well let me ask you a question, church, this morning. If you, have you looked around lately? Does our land appear to be healed? The, I think the consensus answer to that is no. Our land is not healed. So that tells us one of several things. Either A, we don't pray. Either B, we don't humble ourselves. Or either C, we don't do both of them together. And here's what blind Bartimaeus does. And as he's positioned by the roadside, he doesn't say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on my wife. She just doesn't get it. Have mercy on my kids. They just don't get it. They just won't listen. What he says is, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so you see, the tendency, I think, will be, as we prepare for this summit to take place, is for some of you, you came up in here this morning, and you found out that there's an eight-day summit where we're, where we're scheduling and seeking God's face in hopes of revival, and you're going, oh, good, my husband really needs it. Oh, that's good, my kids really need it. I hope they'll show up. I think, I think the real question is, do you need it? I just wonder, I think that the answer to, to all that, I don't even know you, but I can tell you 100% of the answer is yes, myself included. And I just wonder, when will you acknowledge that before God? We'll get into that in a second. And when he heard that it was Jesus, now that he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, isn't it funny that, that for him, that he's standing there by on the roadside where he knows for a fact that Jesus is going to come down, and all of a sudden he begins to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then there's some dissenters in the crowd who are around him who are saying, Oh, no, not you. W- what's Jesus going to do for you? It, you see, it reminds me of, of, of growing up in, in church, unfortunately. And uh, coming back home from summer camp, and we'd have like the report Sunday for, in the youth group where you report it. You guys still do that here, or, or have you done that in the past? You, you know what I'm talking about. I hated report Sunday as a, as a youth, if I'm honest. And so I just kind of sat in the back and didn't really say much of anything because I could, just, I could just feel what my teachers, who I'd been disrespectful to, I could just feel what they had to say, right? Like, oh, yeah, you want to go to ministry? Yeah, right. Good luck. Yeah, I could just feel that, you know? I could just, I, I could just feel that that's what was being said. And, and so it's funny is like, is like here, here are these people who are standing by the roadside waiting to meet with Jesus and somebody begins to cry out to Jesus and they go, oh, you, you're going to cry out, Wait, you think you're worthy of Jesus. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but it sounds to me like something we do once a week when we come to church and all of a sudden we see somebody that says, oh, they want to go into ministry or they, or, or, or they need prayer for something. Oh, you? Well, I've got bigger issues. And you see, that's what Blind Bartimaeus does. And so Blind Bartimaeus hears the negativity and here's what happens. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And verse 48 tells us that many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And so he went back home. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? So he cried out all the more. 
Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, upon hearing this negativity, here's what blind Bartimaeus will teach us this morning, is that if we're ever going to collide with Jesus, point number one this morning, if you're writing something down, write this down this morning, point number one, if we're ever going to collide with Jesus, we must advance through the negative. You must advance through the negative. Church, can I tell you this morning that Jesus is not going to do something in your life without somebody else telling you that it's not possible? Jesus is not going to move in your life in such a way that somebody else is not going to look at you like you're kind of weird. But here's what blind Bartimaeus would tell us, is that, is that if, we're ever going to have this, if we're ever going to collide with Jesus, we must advance through the negative. There's people sitting in, in pews this morning. There's going to be people that are going to be in your Sunday school classes later in the, in the Sundays as you begin to talk about this summit. They're going to go, man, can you believe? What's, that's crazy. Like, like we're going to clear our schedule for an entire week. And if we're going to collide with Jesus, you just got to advance through the negative. There's going to be people who are going to be negative about any decision that's ever made in this place. There's going to be people that are going to say, oh, Jesus wouldn't want you to do that just because they don't feel that Jesus would do that in their life. But what Blind Bartimaeus teaches us is that if we're ever going to collide with Jesus, we must advance to the negative. It reminds me of this story, and I wish that there was so many more people like this lady in my life. But there was a, uh, there was a single father who, uh, when, his, when his son was born, um, when his son was born, his, his, his wife died in, 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 uh, in childbirth, and so he was a single father, and so he was a great dad. Loved his son tremendously and, and, and always wanted to provide and do whatever he had to do for his son, and, and it brought him great joy to raise his, his child. And so as his son was younger, his son would stay around the house and, and play around the house, and, and then as he began to get older, he wanted to go hang out at the, at the friend's house down the road in the neighborhood. And you guys all have been there, and you, you understand that. And his father, it wasn't that he disliked the kids in the neighborhood, but he was just jealous of his son's time and wanted to spend more time with his son. And so he began to think, and he says, man, what is it that I can do that will allow me to spend more time with my son while he hangs out with his friends? Like, what, what can I do? And so he began to scour the internet, and he found, uh, he found this, this cool design for, like, a little tree house that gets placed in the back of the woods. Now, I know some of you students are going, tree house? Like, he didn't find, like, a PS4 or, like, an Xbox One. Right, like, so it was this tree house. So just go with me. It's just part of the story. And so, um, so he found this, found this tree house. like, man, this is great. And so he, he, he orders this, this tree house, and it says it's going gonna, it's gonna to be there in a week. And so right now he's, like, two weeks away from Christmas. And so he goes, man, I hope it comes in a week. And, and uh, so he, he gets to the 20th of, of December, and he still doesn't have this tree house that he had ordered. And he gets to the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, still not there. And then on the 24th, about 5 p.m., here pulls up the delivery truck. Now, I don't know what delivery service delivers at 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve, but it's just part of the story, so go with it. And so... And so the guy goes out to the truck, right? And he's so anxious to get this big, this, this big tree house off the truck. And, he, and so he, he flings up the doors to the back of the truck. And what do you think he sees inside? A big box, that's right. Because every great Christmas present must be put together. You understand that? And so, and, and so he, he finds this huge box. And it's a box that he can't, he can't drag it on his own into his garage. And so uh, he's a little dismayed that it's not already put together. But he says, oh, whatever, I've got to gotta do this for my son. And so he gets the driver to help him. And they, they put it on some hand trucks. And they, they take it into his garage. And so there it sits in his garage. And he begins to put it together. And he puts his son in bed. And it, it gets, it's approaching midnight, 1 a.m. And all of a sudden, as it's about 1.30 in the morning, right, He's sitting in his garage, and he's putting this thing together, and he begins to get extremely upset. Because what he realizes that he's putting together is not actually a treehouse. But instead, the company shipped him the wrong box, and what he's putting together is a big wooden boat. 
He lives in the middle of Nebraska. He's really upset. And so he, he calls the phone number that he finds on the box. And he calls the phone number, and this, this sweet lady answers the phone. She's really sweet. Now, I don't know what company has people working at 1.30 in the morning on Christmas Day, but it's just part of the story, so go with it. And so, uh, so he, he calls the number, and the lady answers the phone. And she says, uh, hey, sir, uh, how may I help you uh, th- this morning? And he says, well, I'll tell you how you can help me. You, you see, I ordered a treehouse from you guys, and I began to put something together, and it's actually a boat that I'm putting together. And, and that doesn't make me happy. And she says, oh, sir, I'm sorry to hear that. And I wish there's so many more people like this lady in my life, because this is what she says. She says, well, sir, you know, it could be a lot worse. And at this point, he's infuriated. Oh, please tell me, how could it be any worse than what it, what's going on right now? She said, well, just, sir, just imagine. You could be the man that is, uh, think, think that he's putting together a boat, when in fact he's standing in the middle of the lake putting together a treehouse. Yeah, I guess, guess that is worse. I guess it is. But you know what, I wish there were so many more people like that lady in my life that just saw the glasses half full. That just when, 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 there, was, when there was something to be debated, she just went with, with a better option. But unfortunately, we don't find many people like that in our life. We don't find many people who see the glass half full. And so what Blind Bartimaeus teaches us is that if we're ever going to collide with Jesus, we must advance through the negative. You just got to keep going. Then when you, you hear negativity, oh, eight days, I can't believe we're going to meet together every night. That's silly. And then there's a seminar on Saturday morning. That's silly. I can't believe that. Okay, well, that's your opinion. But I'm going to continue to pray for this thing and, and think that, this, that, that God's going to really show up and show out in a way that I've never seen before. And you just got to advance through the negative. It was true for me in ministry. When I accepted the call to ministry, I had all my old ex-teachers. You thought that was just like, a, like some story that I was pulling out. All my old ex-teachers, they go, oh, well, oh, you, ministry. You, that's you in ministry. You just got to advance. You just got to advance through the negative. You, gotta, you have to advance through what you, don't, what you know is not true and believe in what God's going to do in your life. And so blind Bartimaeus begins to advance through the negative. And so he says, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And check this out in verse number 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. Take heart, get up. He's calling. Now check this out. This is the only time in scripture with the exception of uh, one of two times in scripture that that I know of that Jesus actually stopped in his tracks for somebody else. One was with the lady with the issue of blood. She touched his robe. He stopped right in his tracks. Second time here, he's crying out. Jesus stops right in his tracks and says, whoa, bring him to me. And so you see, so here's blind Bartimaeus, and and he continues to cry out, and and it stops Jesus in his tracks. And I just wonder, how many of us are so close to the edge of the road that when we cry out in a loud voice that Jesus hears us so vividly and so loudly that he stops in his tracks? And so he said, bring him to me. And then this is where I find the ironic part happening right here. This is where, what I find kind of funny right here. Uh, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Well, who is they? Special dispensation this morning. You can talk in church just today. Next week, you can go back and do whatever you normally do. You could talk this morning. Who is the they in this, that it's referring to here? It's the crowd, the people that were telling him to be quiet, right? Does that sound familiar? I mean, I mean, listen, it's like, it's like church, like the people that go, oh, no, God would never do that. But then all of a sudden they watch God begin to move in your life. And they go, oh, I've been praying for you the whole time. It's like that teacher. It's like that teacher for me that said, oh, you're going into ministry? I can't believe it. 
couple years ago, there was a, a, a group from that church that I used to go to from my hometown that was at, at some event that I was preaching, and, and it was some youth event. And, and anyway, apparently the word had gotten back in, in the church who the preacher was. I saw her. I went back home to see my parents. Saw her in the grocery store. She came up to me. She said, she said, listen, I heard, I heard about this summer, and, and it was so great. She said, I always knew you could do it. It's just funny. Listen, when God begins to move, everybody's on board. We all want a part of what Jesus is doing, but, but here's what Jesus noticed. You see, he didn't notice the other crowd who were dissentful at first and then on board later. Who does he notice? He notices the man who had abandoned everything that he knew. He notices the man who is willing to advance through the negativity to meet him there, and he says, that man, bring him to me. They were all crying. You don't think people were standing on the edge of the road crying out, but all of a sudden it was that man's voice that Jesus heard? It's by no accident that Jesus heard his voice. And so then the people around him are going, I knew you could do it. You get up. You were yelling real loud. I knew you had it in you. Go see Jesus. The same people that were telling him to be quiet. Verse 50 right here. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. There's two things we need to see right here in verse 50. The first thing is that he threw off his cloak. You go, Mac, why is that significant? Why does that matter? It matters because he's blind. And he threw off his cloak. You go, I don't understand. Please explain. You see, a buddy of mine grew up next to a, uh, next to a, a man who, who was blind. Like he, he literally couldn't see and lived, lived by himself. If you have some, some, some visually impaired uh, family members, you, you know that they live by routine lives and other heightened senses. And so my buddy, uh, he was always intrigued by this guy that was blind that lived next to him because he would walk to the grocery store by himself and come back with groceries by himself. And so he asked him, being the curious little kid that he was, he asked him, he said, sir, I don't mean any disrespect, but could you please tell me how is it that you go to the grocery store and come back if you can't see? He said, that's a great question. He said, I had somebody, a friend of mine come over and walk me to the grocery store. I took note of the sounds and, and the smells that I had and, and took note of some of the steps, the way the concrete felt under my feet. And then I knew that it was like that there were 17 steps from my apartment to the ground. And I knew that there was, that there was another, you know, 37 steps this way. And then I knew I had to take a left when I heard this sound or, or whatever. And then I knew when I got to the grocery store that, that, that I would have to walk down this many steps down this aisle and reach up this high and that would be my product. I put it in my bag, and, and it was just a routine life. And you see blind people live routine lives in which they, their senses are heightened, and they, and they have things by memory. And so here's what the Bible does not tell us that blind Bartimaeus does. The Bible does not say that upon hearing Jesus call his name, he jumped up to his feet, and he took three steps backwards, two steps to the left, and neatly placed his cloak down. The Bible doesn't say that. What does the Bible say? It says right here in verse 50, it says, In throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. You see, here's what blind Bartimaeus knew, is that he was about to get to meet with the Son of God himself, and he knew that either A, he wouldn't need that cloak anymore, or B, that he would, he would have his eyes to see, but the reality is, is that he would never have to go back to the old way of life upon meeting with Jesus. And so he threw off his cloak, or, or I like to say he abandoned the normal. So point number one this morning, if you're going to collide with Jesus, is you've got to advance through the negative. Point number two is that you must abandon the normal. You see, the normalcy for blind Bartimaeus every day in his life was this cloak. That was his normal life. That's what he used to beg. That was his way of life. That was not only his way of life, but it was his, it was his complete financial income. It was for him to beg. And here, in one short moment, Jesus calls out his name, and he throws off everything that he knows. He abandoned what's normal. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know as you sit here this morning. I don't know what's normal to you. 
I don't know what a normal life for you is. I don't know what a normal day for you is. But here's what I do know, is that if you're going to collide with Jesus, you've got, you must be willing to abandon what's normal. Because to continue to do the same thing that you always do and expect a different result, guess what that's defined as? Insanity. Yet we come in here and sit in here in church, and, and, and God speaks to our heart and reveals to us the things that we need to take care of. And then we go back out and we live our life, our normal life, Every day, like we always have before, and we come back in the next Sunday, and God reveals something else to us that, we, that, that really needs to, to, to change in our life. And yet we go back to life as normal. And to continue to do normal things and expect to collide with Jesus, that's just the definition of insanity. And Blah Bartimaeus understands that. And so here, as he's preparing himself to meet with Jesus, he abandons the normal. He advances through the negative, and he's, he abandons what was normal to him. Your normalcy is obviously probably not a begging cloak. But whatever it is, you must be willing to abandon the normal in order to meet with Jesus. And the second thing that we see here is that he didn't just stand up. He sprang up and came to Jesus. Some other translations would, would, would say that he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. If you do a simple word study of the word jump, Webster would define jump as, uh, just a side note, I used to think Webster's dictionary is written by the little guy, Webster. On the TV show, you know what I'm talking about. So, now you're that just ruined everything I had to say this morning. You're going, that dude is stupid, right? So, Webster's defines jump this way to enter eagerly into an activity or to plunge, to begin or to start, to move suddenly in one motion. You see, the, the, the word jump for me, it just it's like an act of finality. You go back, what do you mean? Once you begin to jump, you can't stop jumping, right? Like, I mean, you can jump one time and that's it. But once you begin the process of jumping, you can't stop jumping. Does that make sense? Now, some of you, like, like once you jump, like, it looks like you never did jump at all. But the reality is that you jump, you know? Like, but once you begin to jump, you can't stop it. It's an act of finality. It's an act of commission. You're committing to the act of jumping. And there's nothing you can do about it after you commit to that act. You've jumped into something. It reminds me of, of the time that, when I was in high school, we didn't do, uh, we did our own church camp. We didn't do a, uh, we, we didn't do like a, like a student life camp or something like that. We did our own church camp. And my youth pastor was a, was an ex-Baylor linebacker. He played linebacker next to Mike Singletary. Actually, Mike Singletary tore up Anthony's knees uh, in practice one day. They were tackling the same guy and tore up Anthony's knees. And that's why he's not in the NFL, is what he would tell you. And so, um, and so Anthony was in his mid-40s when I was in high school, and, and so he, he still had that athletic urge to play football, right, or like to, to do something athletic. And so we were at this camp in, uh, in the North Georgia Mountains, and, and Anthony came to me one day, and he says, hey, listen, here's what I found out. I found out that if we drive about 10 minutes from here, we can hike about 40 minutes, and there's this, there's this waterfall that's got a cliff next to it that we can jump off of. It's about 35 to 40 feet high. Do you want to do it? I said, Absolutely. He said, cool, grab a couple of friends, and, and I'll clear off some time tomorrow where I can get away from camp, and we can, the, the, you know, the four of us uh, can go. And so the next day, we did just that. Me and two friends and Anthony got in a car and drove about 10 minutes, and we were hiking. And, and you know me, I mean, I, well, you don't know me, but this will tell you a lot about me, is that I thought like I was going to jump into water, and so I didn't need my tennis shoes, and so I hiked in flip-flops. That's a terrible idea. And uh, so we were, we, were, we, were in, we were almost at the end of this hike, and I was getting frustrated with it. I just wanted to jump off the cliff. Like, I wish there was an elevator to ride up to the cliff, and, and I could just jump off of it. But, and so I was getting frustrated with it all, and I was like, man, let's just go back home, like, like whatever. And then all of a sudden, you could hear the waterfall off in the distance. 
And so uh, we, we, all began to, we all began to walk a little bit faster. And, and about two minutes later, we got to the place where we could see it. And there it was. And it was off in the distance. And it was so beautiful. It was just this waterfall from the distance. And then right next to it, there was a little cliff. And then there was a stream that we had to get across. We had to go across to get up there. But the path to get up to the waterfall wasn't like what we just hiked. It was like everybody, like a lot of people had been to the top of that waterfall. And so it was kind of a smooth path like this up the side of that side of that mountain on the other side of the creek. And so there I was looking at it, and I was like, I'm first, right? And I took off across the creek, and and I ran up this little easy, comfortable path to get up to the top. And I got to the top of the waterfall, and I looked over the edge like this. All right, who's first? Who's going first? All right, who's going first? You know, and then I went and looked again, and I was like, All right, that's kind of high, so who's, who's ready? Who's going, right? And so then I heard a voice behind me, and it's, it's my friend who, who to this day, like I'm surprised he's not dead yet because he always did the stupid stuff first. And so as I'm standing there looking over, he goes, move. He's like, all right. And so I moved out of the way, and, and from like 15 feet back, like he just he ran and just, and just jumped off of that cliff, and, 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 and you go, well, why is that stupid? Well, here's what's stupid about it. He didn't even look over the edge. There could have been like some piranhas over there, you know, in the little, in the little creek at the bottom, right? Or there could be like a shark down there, like you don't know. Or there could be like a rock with a needle on top of it pointing straight up, like you don't know what's over there. But he just went and jumped, and he did it, and I watched him, and it took him a long time to fall 40 feet. And, uh, and, and he, hit, he hit the water, and I was like, man, that looks kind of scary, and and, uh, and so then my other buddy went, and then Anthony went, and then another friend went, and then, and then I was kind of looking over still, like, wow. All right, and then they were all going, and then there was nobody up there, and so I was like, all right, I got to do this. And so I went to the edge, and I was like, it's like 40 feet, man. Like, that's crazy. And you see, it wasn't that I'm, I'm not afraid of heights. Like, that's not what I'm afraid of, right? But if you think about it, think about it right now. Think about your greatest fear in life, right? Everybody think about their greatest fear in life right now. I'm going to tell you the root of that fear. Are you ready? The root of that fear is the fear of the unknown, right? Like you're not afraid of that snake. You're afraid of what happened if the snake were to bite you, right? You're not afraid of that cockroach. You're afraid of the disease that cockroach might be carrying, right? Like you're not afraid of the rat. Same thing, right? You're afraid of the disease it might be carrying. And so for me, as I was standing there on the edge, it wasn't that I was afraid of the height. It was like I trusted my athletic ability. Like I was a pretty good athlete in high school. But I didn't trust my athletic ability enough to know for a fact that if I jump off of this cliff, that I'm going to land in the exact same location as the person in front of me because I know for a fact there's no rocks where they landed because I watched them live. But I didn't know if I, if I landed three feet to the left or three feet to the right, I could hit a rock and die. And so, I'm, so there I am. And all this is going on in my head right now. Like I'm contemplating this jump right here. And so I'm standing there, and I hear the same voice that told me to move earlier. And he says, you got 12 seconds. Well, if you know anything about my friend, 12 actually means like four seconds, right? And then he's going to push me. And so there I am standing on the edge, and I'm like, no, no, no. Seriously, man, like, like let me just, I'll, I'll do it in a second. 12 11, 10. And so he's just counting. And I'm like, oh, man, like I got to do this. Like it's 40 feet down, but I've got to do this. Like, like, I, like I literally might die doing this, but I'll probably die if I don't do this. And so like I, I've got to go, and I don't want to be pushed. And so he got to, to 9, 8, 7, and I knew if I, he got to 6, I was gone anyway, right? And so he got to 7, and so I jumped at 7. 
And I prayed to God I could turn into Wiley Coyote, pedal my legs, and get back on the cliff. But it didn't happen. Once I jumped, I was committed to that action of jumping. There was nothing I could do about it. So I might as well enjoy it on the way down. And so I got a sweet tea and, and for the long fall down to the water. No, and so I'm out there. So I, I'm out there, and everything's going through my head. Like, I can't believe I just did this. Wow, this is a long way down. This is nuts. I'm probably going to die. I wish I would hit the water so I would stop thinking. That's what I was thinking in my head. And all of a sudden, I hit the water, hit a rock, and died. No, I didn't, right? Like, I didn't. I hit the water, went down for a while, came back up, and I was like, Man, that was awesome. Then what did I say? Let's do it again, right? Like, of course I did. I said, let's do it again. And my buddy goes, we've been here for three hours. What have you been doing? But it's so funny because it's like, it's like that's exactly where God wants to take you, right? Like he wants to take you to the edge of the cliff and he wants you to look into something you don't know. You don't know what's down there. Like it's the unknown. It's like you see water, but you don't know what's down there. And the reality is, is what God desires to do during these days is take you to the edge of the unknown and you look over and you go, God, I don't know what's down there. I don't know. And it's so scary. Like it's scary to jump. It's scary. Like I don't know what's going to happen if I say this. I don't know what's going to happen if I allow God to really move in my life. But, but you look in the unknown and God's just going, just jump, just trust me. And here's what happens is when you jump and what you don't know, when you land and you see everything's okay, here's what happens. You go, man, let's do it again. God, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. You see blind Bartimaeus, when he jumped to his feet, he really didn't know for a fact what was going to happen. But he knew he had to jump into the unknown for the chances that he might be healed. And church, can I tell you this morning that the, the that in February, that's the chance that you're going to have is that God's going to take you to the edge of the cliff and you're going to look over into something that's scary, something that you don't know, something that you don't think you can survive that jump and he's going to go, jump, just trust me. Won't you jump? Just trust me. And you're going to have the option to jump into what you don't know or to walk back down the same comfortable path of no change that got you up there. You see that day I jumped off the cliff, I could have walked back down the same comfortable path that got me there. That didn't hurt at all to get up there. But I chose to jump. And church, can I tell you that my life, that my life ever since jumping off that cliff and ever since jumping off the cliff into into a life in the ministry with Jesus, my life has been a series of Jesus taking me to the top of the cliff, going, won't you jump? And every time I jump, it's scary and I don't know what's going on. But every single time when I come up for air, I'm like, that was amazing. Let's do it again. But in order to get to the top of the cliff, you must abandon what's normal. That's what blind Bartimaeus understood. You see, in Scripture, it's not, it's, it's not just this passage in which we see somebody abandon what was normal. Right? Jesus and the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, hey, uh, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus said, sell everything that you have. Now, is he telling, is he telling you that rich people can't get into heaven? That's absolutely not what he's saying. But what he knew was normal for this rich young ruler was all of his riches. That's what he found comfort in. And Jesus said, okay, abandon the comfort zone that you're in right now. Abandon your normal and come follow me. What's the rich young ruler do? What does he do? Turns and walks away, right? He wasn't willing. He looked over the edge of the cliff and said, I can't do it. I can't jump into what I don't know. What about Zacchaeus? You guys know the story of Zacchaeus? A wee little man was he? He climbed up into the sycamore tree to, that's right, we've all graduated from VBS. That's awesome. To see what he could see. Jesus says what? 
Zacchaeus come down from there, and what happens? He came down. You see, he got to the edge of the cliff, and he abandoned what was normal to him, and he jumped. What about Nicodemus, right? The original Nick at night, right? Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He abandoned what was normal to him. He abandoned everything that was normal to come meet with Jesus. And church, can I tell you that during these days, you're going to have to abandon the normal in order to collide with Jesus. And I just wonder, will you jump? When Jesus takes you to the edge of the cliff, will you jump? Y'all got to listen in a hurry. We got to finish up. Check this out. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus in verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I remember when I read this, this passage. I'm a huge sports fan. I, I love sports and watch sports all the time. And I love John Madden, but let's be honest, his last few years on TV, he wasn't much of a commentator. He was like more of an obvious stater, right? And so uh, Al Michaels would often ask him, well, John, uh, what do the Falcons have to do to get back in this game in the second half? They're down by seven points. What do they have to do to get back in the game? And John would say, well, Al, they're going to need to score more points. Yes, John, I'm so glad we pay you millions of dollars. That's correct. They do need to score more points. It's just like an obvious question. And when, when I read this, like, I was like, what is Jesus doing? Right? Like, he, he knows everything. He certainly knows what this man needs. Why in the world is he asking him what he needs? I mean, check this out. He says, verse 51, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Like, like Jesus, I mean, here's Jesus. He's over here with a blind man. And he meets the blind man and he goes, what do you want me to do for you, blind man? Man who can't see? Man without sight? What do you want me to do for you? You know? Like, like it's like, gosh, like, do you really need to ask that? But check out what the, what the blind man says. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. You see, it was in that moment that Jesus just spoke to my heart, and that's what he said. This blind man finally acknowledged his need before Jesus. You see, sure, the blind man, sure, he needed to be able to see, but he needed a lot of other stuff. I mean, he could have gone to Jesus and said, hey, can I just get a couple of dinar in the bank? Just, just give me some cash. I need some money. I'm a blind beggar. Give me money. He could have said that to Jesus. That's a need he had in his life. He could have said, hey, I'm going to need a new cloak because I threw mine off earlier. Can I get a new cloak? He might have said, man, listen, I live on the streets begging. How about a little cottage, a little house? Can I get that from you? What about a wagon? Can I get a wagon to get around from town to town? Like, can I get a donkey? He could have said any of this stuff. He could have acknowledged any of these needs. But what he does is he comes to Jesus, and the most pressing need in his life is his need to be able to see. And here's what he does. is Jesus says, blind man, I'll do anything in the world for you. What do you want me to do? And the blind man says, Jesus, let me regain my sight. You see, church, this morning, here's what blind Bartimaeus teaches us, is that we must advance through the negative to collide with Jesus. We must abandon through the normal to collide with Jesus, and we must, we must, we must acknowledge our need. Because here's the reality. Jesus might have already this morning put his finger on an issue in your life, and which you know for a fact he's been working on for years. And he's just asking you, won't you please just acknowledge that need? Because you could, I mean, you could say a, a number of different things. I mean, it never fails to me when I'm in, when I'm in, in, in churches or when I'm at a youth group and I present the, the, the clearest gospel invitation that I know how, that the obvious answer is like, if you're going to come forward, it's because you need Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. And yet there's people that come forward and go, I just need to be a better dad. I just need to be a better student. I just need to be a better son to my parents. Well, all that stuff's good, and you do need to be all that, but the root of your issue is that you need to be saved. 
And the reality is, is like, you may need to be a better coworker. You may need to be a better husband. You may need to be a better wife. But what Jesus is asking, he's not asking all the tertiary issues in your life. He's asking about the primary issue. What is your main need from me this morning? And some of you, you just need to come to Jesus and you just need to acknowledge your need before him. No matter what people may say, no matter what people may think, your issues are larger than these secondary and tertiary issues that you think are your main issue, when in reality, it's all a matter of a heart issue. And so here's Bon Bartimaeus, and he could have said a number of different things. He could have said, I'm not a good beggar. I don't do, I don't do good at work. Like, I don't, whatever, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't make budget. He could have said all this stuff, but instead, what does he say? He says, let me regain my sight. And some of you just need to approach the throne of Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a bad husband, a bad father, a bad worker, but Jesus, I just need you to help me regain my sight. Check out what happens when he says that. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And so blind Bartimaeus went back to begging by the side of the road. Is that what your Bible says? What does it say? And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You see, the problem is for many of us is we want to come to Jesus, get fixed, and go back to our old way of life, and it just doesn't work like that church. That's just not the way God designed it. You see, he gave up his life, so you'll give up yours for him. It's not about coming to Jesus, getting healed, and going back to your old way of life. Blind Bartimaeus threw off his cloak because he knew he would never need it again because Jesus would heal him in such a way that he wouldn't want to follow him for the rest of his life. And Jesus, you're going to have this encounter with God. You're going to collide with Jesus in such a way that you're going to abandon whatever's normal to you. You're going to acknowledge your need before him, and then guess what he's going to do? Come follow me on the way. And you're going to go back to work following Jesus on the way. You're going to go back to school following Jesus on the way. But my question to you is in February when this Life Action team comes and figuratively your church is put on the road to Jericho where Jesus is going to walk right by. Will you be there acknowledging your need? Will you be there abandoning the normal? And will you advance through the negative just to get you there? See, there was a uh, British revivalist years ago by the name of Gypsy Smith. <clears throat> Gypsy Smith would walk from town to town, village to village, city to city. And as he would walk between the cities, he'd be praying for that city to, to experience revival as only God can send it. And as he's praying, he, he prays as he walks between the city, he prays to the next one. And right before he would get to the edge of the city, right there at the town gates, he'd get down on his knee, and he'd take his finger, and he'd draw a circle around himself in the dirt or in the sand or in the mud, whatever happened to be outside that city. And he's prayed, he'd say, God, I pray that you send revival to this town, to this village, to this city. But God, I pray that you would send it and begin it in me. And so this morning, what there is on either side of these 
Operation Christmas Child boxes, what you'll find is you'll find a, just a basket of, of chalk. And by way of invitation this morning, what I'd love to challenge you to do as a church is I challenge you to spend the next 13 weeks in prayer for a revival. You see, there's, there's, we have some verbiage that we use in our ministry. We call it little R revival and big R revival. And the two, the two differences are, just, are defined this way. Little R revival is personal revival. Big R revival is corporate revival. Corporate revival is a sovereign move of the Lord. We have nothing to do with that. Little R revival is personal revival. Guess who has some control over that? You and I do. See, little our revival is about going, okay, God, search me and know me. See my heart, God. I, I want you to send revival to this church. I want you to send revival to Oxford, but I want you to begin it in me. And guess what happens? When you begin to pray for revival and you begin to pray for revival and you begin to pray for revival in your own heart, and you begin to pray, 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 and all of a sudden now we've got a group of people that are praying for personal revival. They're experiencing that. God's faithful to give what we ask. You see all of a sudden a small group. Then you see a Sunday school class who they're all personally seeking intimate personal revival with the Lord. Guess what happens? Then all of a sudden we see corporate revival happen, all because some people got serious about their walk with Jesus and got taken to the edge of the cliff and looked over and said, I don't know what's down there, but I know Jesus took me here, and so I'm going to jump. And we jump off into what we don't know, only to find out that God is so good that he's always going to take care of us. And we've abandoned the normalcy of our life in order to do so acknowledge our need before him, and all of a sudden we're praying for this intimate revival with Jesus, and now we've got a corporate revival, and now Oxford's never the same again. Why? Because some people got serious about their walk with Jesus. And so this morning, the invitation is very, very simple. It's not, not hard at all. As we come to sing, the band comes and sing and, and play for invitation. Here's what I'd love to ask you to do as a church body. If you would say, Mac, I'm going to commit to pray for revival, but I'm not praying for revival for my husband or for my son or for my daughter or for my wife. I'm not praying for, or, or for that person sitting three rows in front of me that really needs revival. I'm going to pray that you would send revival and begin at my heart. And that's you, where you sit this morning. You say, you say, Mac, I'll commit to, to over the next 13 weeks praying for revival, praying that God would send it in our midst via me, that God would begin revival in my heart. If that's you, and you say, I'll commit to doing that for the next 13 weeks, in just a second, when I, when I pray and when I say amen, won't you come and grab a piece of chalk and take it back with you? And this chalk, and you can take it and draw a circle at your house. I've had people draw a circle outside their front door, and that every time they walked out of it, they stood in that circle and prayed for revival that God would send it and begin it in their heart. But it's not necessarily for you to use to draw on the sidewalk or your driveway. But instead, for you to put it in some prominent location where you'll see it each and every day. Maybe on your desk at work. Maybe your mirror in your bathroom. Maybe your dresser at home. Maybe on your nightstand right by your bed. Maybe it's on the dash of your car where every morning when you're driving to work, you see it. Place this places somewhere in a prominent location where you'll see this piece of chalk and it'll remind you that 13 weeks from today we've got a schedule, schedule we've, we've scheduled a series of meetings together that we seek God's face for revival and that you would pray that God would be, send revival and begin it in you.
Now, some of you this morning, God's already touched an issue in your heart and in your life in which you know that you need to get right before God about. Don't you dare, please don't you, come grab a piece of chalk to kind of push away whatever God's asking you to do. If God is asking you to do something this morning, you deal with Jesus in the way that he's asking you. This altar's always open. Pastor's gonna be down front to receive you this morning. Some of you have been coming to this church for a long time. Been coming here for a long time. You go, man, I've been coming for a long time, but I've never joined this church. Maybe this morning, you need to come and join the church. Pastor will be down front to receive you this morning. Some of you are sitting here this morning going, man, I've had so many secondary and, and tertiary issues that, that I've been shouting to God, when in reality, I just need to get saved. Pastor will be down front to receive you as well. I pray that if God's moved in your heart this morning and challenged you of an issue in your life, that you would come kneel at this altar and deal with that first. You would, you would pray with a pastor and deal with that first before you ever grab a piece of chalk. But I pray that everybody in the room would just come grab a piece of chalk saying, hey, I'm going to commit to praying for this revival for the next 13 weeks. If God spoke to your heart this morning, won't you come and do business with Jesus? Father, we love you. God, and we thank you so much for who you are, for what you desire to do in our life and in our midst. And so, God, I pray that this morning, God, that as you've spoken to us, God, that you've taken some of us this morning already to the edge of the cliff. God, I pray as you take us to the edge of the cliff, God, that we would look over the edge this morning. We'd see something we don't know, but we would jump anyway. Why? Because you've taken us there. You'll catch us, and you'll take us to the edge of the cliff again. So, God, please, move in this place. May we respond as you speak. In your holy name I pray. Amen. As we sing, won't you come? Just as I am.